Bomber describes the real-life manhunt for a serial bomber. The events are sometimes graphic and intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Last time on Bomber. So far, two people killed and two others seriously hurt after opening packages left on their doorsteps. And that's when we categorically decided, hey, this is a serial bomber. We have to jump into this with everything we have. With each bomb, it became more and more unusual and obviously more and more dangerous to a major city. Three bombs over 10 days. Two of the blasts in one day, just hours apart. Austin was under attack. When would the next bomb arrive? Who would open the deadly package? And in a city of over 2 million people, how do you track down a bomber? I'm Jason Puckett, and this is Bomber. Into the It was March 2018, and two Austin residents had been killed opening up package bombs. One, a 39-year-old father, the other, a 17-year-old classical musician. Two others were injured. The city was on edge and mourning the lives of those lost. Stephen House, Texas State University graduate and father. Draylen Mason, aspiring doctor and an orchestra bassist. The bombings were making news outside of Austin at this point. The anxiety spilling over into Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, and reporters and news crews from across the country were streaming into Austin. In New York, ABC News lead investigative reporter Josh Margolin was watching closely. He spent years covering similar events around the country. You know, the the, the, the downside of my job uh, working for a, a major national news organization in this period in American history is that covering crime means covering very, very large-scale, terrible stories. Josh heard what was going on soon after the first explosion on March 2nd. I think we heard that there had been a fatality and not to minimize the loss of life. But, you know, we have we have fatal incidents every single day. So I distinctly remember hearing about it and then sort of moving on. But as the bombings escalated, so did the news coverage. Bombs two and three shifted the story into high gear for Josh and the team at ABC News. Bombings do have have that that sort of terror associated with it because it just, it goes from absolute nothing to absolute horror. You know, it really does, it's not only the nature of the act and how how shocking it is, but there's something very, very intimate about the intrusion and, and the, the violence of it. As Josh Margolin started talking to his sources, he learned what was on the minds of investigators. Law enforcement was quietly telling us that these things were designed to look like packages that could be shipped. Now, they hadn't been shipped, but the fear was that the bomber, whoever this was, was going to try to put the packages into the shipping or mail system. That is always the biggest fear of law enforcement because when you start talking about things being put into the shipping or the mail delivery system, you're quickly talking about Planes. Josh and other network news crews would soon be on the ground in Austin, chasing leads for viewers around the country. Myself and my superiors decided that it was time for me to go to Austin. For interim police chief Brian Manley, the threat of another bomb was constantly on his mind. The fact that the next deadly package could literally be sitting on someone's doorstep, unopened. You know, I, I guess another concern was the manner in which they were being placed just on doorsteps in front of people's homes. 
the thought of an unsuspecting child just walking down the street picking up a package. Um, it was just very concerning to realize that we were under the kind of attack that we were under, that these were being, uh, at this point we had no motive uh, and no reason to believe that, that the victims were selected for any particular reason. We weren't ruling that out, but we had not ruled anything in yet because we were so early in the investigation on bombs two and three. So it was the understanding that these could truly be anywhere in our city and that we needed to get information out immediately. Hundreds of FBI and ATF agents were streaming into Austin. Chris Combs was the FBI lead agent in charge. I think when the second bomb happened, you know, you jump to conclusions. Hey, th- this could be a serial bomber. We started discussing that. We're getting updates from the scene, from our Austin Police Department partners, from the FBI that was on scene. We were already talking here about what assets are we going to start moving into Austin. And then for sure, when the third bomb happened, uh, then there was no question. We had a serial bomber and we had to send massive FBI resources in Austin. And despite a few dead ends early on, the investigation had been in full swing ever since that first bomb exploded on March 2nd, and bomb fragments had been shipped off to D.C. for analysis. Bernard Zaper is a former federal agent with the ATF. Now, he wasn't working the case at the time, but he explains what was going on behind the scenes. Investigators will be able to actually reconstruct what the devices were Prior to detonation, those components, the way it was manufactured, they all have a signature that ties to each other. They need to work on it very quickly because people that tend to do this, they don't stop. Many of the federal investigators called into Austin, like FBI Special Agent in Charge Chris Combs, had years of experience. I said to many of my staff, we don't want to have another Eric Rudolph where it went on for years. We're going to do everything physically possible to get up there and get on top of this and stop it. Fred Milanowski was the ATF special agent in charge of the investigation. So two big bombings that are on our mind is the, the Eric Rudolph investigation in Atlanta and the Boston bombing uh, case. And so I had spent nine months on the Eric Rudolph investigation in Atlanta working that case and then another three or four months in North Carolina chasing him around. Various theories about motive and ideology were all on the table. Is this you know some kind of fringe group that's trying to target you know, a certain population. Um, And so you're trying to tie all that stuff together. So we knew that, that, you know, there was something out of the norm here. This is is not going to be a typical one-off fatal bombing case. Now, the idea of picking through a debris field with tweezers might seem almost unthinkable, but that's where the work begins for the ATF. ATF always starts at what we call the seat of the blast, okay? So that's where the best evidence is. As ATF is processing that scene, they're not just picking up evidence. They're agents and they're certified explosive specialists. So as they're picking up pieces of that device and evidence, they're processing that in their brain, in their head. And um, within about 48 hours, um, our explosive experts had put that device back together uh, exactly the way it was built. The exploded fragments might also have other more significant evidence attached to them. If we identified DNA, if we identify a fingerprint, um, obviously develop a suspect. Um, and, and that's where, you know, ATF was working and focusing on. And obviously everyone involved was trying to tie these victims together and see why were these victims targeted. Because they basically rebuilt the first device that killed Stefan House, Agents knew what they were looking for when it came to bombs two and three. He changed things a little bit, but but nothing. Um, and, and what we call that is a bomber signature. 
You know, once a bomber figures out a way to make his devices and make them go off when he wants and has successes, he doesn't change. And I say he because most of Bombers in America have been males. But he varied a little bit, but for the most part, the the core part of the devices were all the same. So we, I mean, we knew instantly within the first five minutes of being on that scene, our explosive experts could look at the evidence and say, that's the same guy. And in the case of the Austin bombings, several components were the same across all those first three bombs. The batteries were pretty consistent. Um, and then the, what he used for switching devices were, were fairly consistent. Because we were able to rebuild that first one, it, was, it made it that much easier to know exactly what they're looking for. With that critical evidence, agents began hitting the streets, fanning out to stores across Austin. So then... What we're looking at doing is identifying where those components are sold. And then we're reaching out to those stores or or going to those stores and interviewing them and determining, do they have a customer list of people who bought these components? So we knew certain things that were in that device from the type of pipe that was used to any kind of switches that were used, any kind of batteries that were used. You know, mostly you were looking at uh, lots and lots and lots of data, lots of receipts, Um, lots of video, um, everything you can to try to identify a vehicle, a person, or an individual who had bought any of these components for this device. You might call it good old-fashioned police work, going into big box stores, hardware stores, anywhere someone could have bought components for the bomb. From the beginning, we started to build a database of people who had bought one or more of these components. Because a lot of stores have inventory systems or credit card systems that can tell us who bought those. So, but we have to be real careful with that because, you know, 99.9% of those people are absolutely innocent people that might have just bought a certain kind of battery or a certain battery pack. So even as Austin police pursued various leads and theories in the early days, federal agents had been hard at work from day one rebuilding the bomb, identifying the components, collecting receipts, and building that database. There was a growing mountain of evidence. As a reporter, I was following the case from all angles. Police, federal agents, neighbors, even social media. Twitter, Facebook, message boards, and Reddit, they were all buzzing with theories about the bomber. Maybe it was a lone wolf, a killer intent on injuring and killing minorities. Or was it something more organized? Terrorism, even? There was no end to the swirl of ideas. KVU's Erica Proffer. You have to think about all the different kinds of um, connections. You know, is this gang related? Is this drug related? Is this, um, you know, are they connected to any sort of um, group? And, you know, I would say fairly quickly, we ruled out those sorts of things. And I mean, we were really scratching our heads. Why these people? The national news spotlight fell on Austin, too. We started hearing more speculation, more mentions of names like McVeigh and Eric Robert Rudolph and the Unabomber. We were reminded of how they were caught. At the station, we even had our own command center set up. I, I remember we set up a, a, a little makeshift desk area for everyone and ran extension cords and you know tried to give everyone a workspace because we had, I don't know, a dozen or so uh, reporters and producers and photographers all coming in to contribute. And, I mean, it was it was chaos. We also wondered what kind of person could build a package bomb. What did it take? Doug is an ATF agent and specialized bomb expert who worked in Dallas for more than two decades. We're leaving out his last name on purpose to protect his identity. 
He remembers how a lot of people thought the Olympic Park bomber, Eric Rudolph, must have been well-trained in weapons. The thought was that this was a very well-trained person, and it turned out he wasn't that well-trained. There's a lot of information out there that a person can gather. Rudolph was able to gather enough information to build a bomb that killed two and injured 120 people. And in the years since then, the amount of bomb-making information out there has just increased exponentially. At the beginning of my time with ATF, uh, most people had to get a hold of um, James Bond, Poor Man, Anarchist Cookbook, things like that to construct a device. Now all you have to do is hit the keys on the computer and Google it, and you can get whatever you want. At KVU, we talked to our own experts about the investigation. We brought in Fred Burton. He's the chief security officer for Stratfor. That's a global intelligence firm based in Austin. Bombers uh, like to make devices in groups. Uh, so uh, as we chatted about uh, last time, uh, we will see more bombings until uh, APD and the federal authorities uh, hunt this individual down. Now, on a positive note, uh, more bombings do give you more forensic evidence. And it's been my experience in working these kinds of cases that the forensics will ultimately lead to the apprehension of the uh, bomber. We wondered if the bomber was acting alone. I certainly would not rule out a wheelman or an accomplice in some capacity, but uh, if you look back over the history of serial bombers, they're typically loners. They are typically uh, psychiatric, uh, challenged in some capacity. Uh, so uh, you're looking at an individual that's very methodical, but he, he may have a route, a job, that actually puts him in this kind of position so he has cover for action it's caused in order to do his, uh, uh, in order to put his devices down. We heard from mental health experts, psychiatrists like Dr. Wilson Renfro. It always is typically mixed with a sense of paranoia and um, twisted thinking. These kinds of people rarely seek help, but they feel like they're right and, and that essentially society is out of step with them. And we started wondering if any of the bombs could have been copycat attacks. We learned common signs of a copycat crime. Order and proximity. Did the crime happen near or around the time of the original crime? Two, theme consistency. Are they mimicking what the originator did? That could be as simple as something like wearing the same type of gloves or having the same type of mannerisms. And number three, overexposure to that crime. Was the person obsessed with the crime and how it was committed? The bombings were reverberating around Texas and making national news. In Houston, KHOU mental health expert Bill Prasad was asked about the psychology of a serial bomber. This might be the kind of person who's a psychopath. So a key element to being a psychopath is you have to lack compassion and lack empathy. Essentially, you see people as objects. There's an unquenching need for power, and at times, you taunt the police. Also, you're looking to settle some kind of an injustice or a perceived wrong. And then, as far as being a skilled bomb maker, do you have to be skilled? Essentially, the answer is no. There's enough material on the Internet to build a bomb, and that's not a surprise to anyone. As FBI agents fanned out across Austin, going to home improvement and hardware stores, looking at credit card receipts, Austin police were hitting the streets and knocking on doors, looking for any witnesses, or maybe they'd catch a lucky break with the neighbor's home surveillance video. We talked to Richard Rodriguez, who has a network of cameras outside his house, set up to monitor his elderly grandfather. I never really worried about things like that, and now that they happen, you know, just down the street, you know, it does. I mean, feels just like you got to be on edge. KVU reporters like Erica Proffer were digging into every detail of the story, 
anything we could learn about a possible link between the victims. It was something that we had to do, right? We had to get word out to a community that was not only concerned, could my neighborhood be next, but they were also trying to help. Uh, They tried to give any sort of tips that they could possibly give. Our 911 system got flooded with tips. And with all those calls coming in, the system was overloaded. Austin residents were on edge and eager to report anything that might be suspicious. If you have any information to provide regarding the package bomb explosions in the area surrounding Austin, Texas, please press 1. I pressed 1, and I was told that the wait, line, the, the wait time would be approximately 25 minutes. I thought, wow, that's a long time. I don't know if my tip is really worth waiting 25 minutes to share. It could be nothing. When you are asking the public to call if you have any information and there is no way for them to call, that's a problem. Part of the problem had to do with what people were reporting. A lot, actually, of the calls that they said that they were getting were people saying, you should pull the cameras from all of the neighbors Things like that, that I'm sure the people had good intentions in their heart when they were making that call. But it's really not helpful to call and tell investigators how to do their job. Everyone wanted to help to stop the next explosion, to track down a killer. But there was still no word on any suspects, no police sketch, no possible description. What we didn't know at the time is that the police had two men they were following, two people of interest, Brian Manley. After the bombings that took place uh, on on the 12th, bombings two and three, um, we did come up with some persons of interest based on some of the investigations that had been done. And uh, we're working, you know, to determine if they were in fact responsible for this, all the while realizing that there may be others involved or that we may be on the wrong path. There was two or three individuals that, you know, we focused on pretty hard for different reasons. Um, And and again, so you're looking at not only componentry within the device, but potential cell phone tower information, whose cell phone might have been in the area. And so you start looking at things, you look at people's backgrounds, or it could be potentially someone that we just caught on video um, that was in the neighborhood, and we start looking in their background, and the background looks you know, someone interesting or they've had, uh, you know, a police report before they made a threat or something like that. So you're always going to have those people that the data looks interesting, um, but it doesn't pinpoint. But interesting enough that you're paying attention to who they are, where they are and what they're doing. FBI special agent in charge, Chris Combs. With any investigation, you go through a list. You, You put together who are the possibles, who do we think may be behind it, and you always have a long list. The way people become possibles, it could be their behavior, it could be past statements, it could be past actions. Who in the area has been known to play with explosives? Who in the area has been convicted of explosive-related crimes? You start putting all those names together, and you got to go through them all to, again, either rule them out or rule them in. The information they had on those two men was strong enough that they put 24-hour surveillance on them, watching their every move. If they were responsible for the bombings, police would be ready to swoop in at the first sign of another attack. On the flip side, they didn't want to haul in an innocent Austin resident. You know, the last thing you want to do is is chase rabbit holes. And the last thing you want to do is go after somebody who's innocent. So while they were keeping a close eye on a few people, investigators weren't at a point where they were ready to move in. To be honest with you, we had a couple of leads that we were following, but 
I don't think we were ever at the point where we felt, hey, this is the main subject. There were a number of people we were we were actively working on, but I never felt like, hey, this this is the one that's going to break the case. More stores, more receipts, more surveillance videos, more names typed into a database. The list grew longer. They kept an eye on their persons of interest, and for a few days, and then almost a week, the bombing stopped. Well, going into that weekend, uh, there hadn't been a bombing since the Monday. So we were starting to think, all right, what do we have to do if this goes long term? You know, there hasn't been a bombing since Monday. Why is that? What's, what's going on? Was the bomber gearing up for another attack? Had he simply vanished? It was unsettling. It had been a 10-day period between the first two bombs. But then the second and third explosions were just hours apart. There was no pattern, no obvious connection between the victims. Investigators were exhausted, but they were determined. And they came up with a new plan. ATF has um, an individual, special agents assigned as a profiler um, down at Quantico. And so they were on scene. They came up with the strategy of, of trying to get the bomber to communicate with us um, and to see why he's doing this, what he wants, if he wants something. A press conference was scheduled for Sunday, March 18th, six days after the last explosion in East Austin. All the lead investigators would be there, but it wasn't just to share information with the public and the press. That press conference was for two purposes. One was to announce a larger reward that was being offered. But the second purpose was really to try to communicate with the bomber and get him to communicate with us. So bombers typically have a message. Uh, and typically communicate with sometimes the media or sometimes the investigators um, because they want to get their message out. I mean, we all remember the Unabomber and his manifesto. And, and so we were trying, our intention was to have that press conference to try to talk to the bomber and try to get him to communicate with us. Once again, Interim Police Chief Brian Manley stood behind the podium. The message to the bomber was clear. There's the message behind what's happening in our community, and we're not going to understand that until the suspect or suspects reaches out to us to talk to us about what that message was. We still do not know what ideology may be behind this, what the motive was behind this, and that's why it's important right now that we have the opportunity to speak with the subject or subjects that are responsible for this so we can understand what's happening here. A large reward was offered for information leading to an arrest. And there was a new message from police this time for spring breakers coming back into town. Last week was spring break and many people travel during spring break. And there may actually be people that have just now returned from being away who are not aware of what took place in our community while they were gone. And it is important, again, I'm glad the media is here as you are to get this message out. By Sunday afternoon, everyone needed a rest, a good night's sleep. It had been 17 days since the first bomb shook that small East Austin neighborhood and started us down this nightmare. FBI Special Agent in Charge, Chris Combs. Uh, so Sunday, actually, it, it ended up being a decent thing. We decided, hey, let, let's go home a little early. Let's get some rest. It's been a very long week. All of us working 15-hour days. Let's get ready to, to hit this hard Monday morning. I had food delivered to the room, and I was just trying to get my thoughts together, come up with our investigative strategy for the next day. But sleep or a quiet meal wouldn't be an option. Not for Chris Combs and not for Brian Manley. I was at a, at, at a family dinner at a, at a local restaurant and got the call. It was one of my assistant chiefs and they just told me that we've now had another bomb go off and that we did have victims that were hurt. Uh, I immediately went home and got uh, dressed and headed to work. 
The combination of fatigue and adrenaline must have been almost overwhelming as news of a fourth bomb came in. We had all been expecting it, but when it happened, it rocked us all to the core. It was just after 8.30 when we heard about the explosion. Police say they have a serial bomber on their hands after yet a fourth attack. Well, this latest bombing is the fourth in just 17 days, and Austin police are saying there are similarities among the four. That fourth blast would change everything. The theories, the motives, possible suspects, who was being targeted, everything was out the window. And police were back to square one. Next time on Bomb. This is a jump in sophistication. This is a jump in lethality. And that concerned us greatly. So that was a whole nother issue. Was he's raising his game. He's taking it to another level. Into the Bomber is a production of Vault Studios and KVU. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and other major listening platforms. Our executive producer is Will Johnson. My thanks to the people of Austin, my colleagues at KVU, the men and women of the Austin Police Department, and federal law enforcement agents for taking part in this podcast. Join us next week for Bomber Part 4. Bomber.